what I find in my, you know, in our area, because we are such a rural area, and like I said, our town is only, you know, about 3,000 people. We're such a rural area, and a lot of people in this area go, man, that won't happen here. It never happens here. And then when it does happen, everybody's total shock. And a lot of the officers are in the same boat. They don't believe it's going to happen to them until you're in that situation. Hey guys, check out the 2023 Street Cop Conference, April 23rd through the 28th, Gaylord Convention Center. It's going to be the event of the year. Keynote speakers include Rob O'Neill, the guy who killed Bin Laden, Kyle Carpenter, the youngest living Medal of Honor recipient, Navy SEAL Jason Redmond, Fox News host Tommy Lahren, Marine Corps Special Forces and Leadership Coach Cody Alford, Sheriff Wayne Ivey, Sheriff David Clark, and Sheriff Mark Lamb. It's going to be one hell of an event. And on top of that, we have all of our instructors and additional instructors from other companies going to be at the event, giving you everything they know for you to have a successful career and get the results you want to get in the field as a police officer. On top of attending the event, you'll get face-to-face -face time with every instructor attending the event, and all the keynote speakers will spend time with you. we got special events all week, giveaways, nightlife. It's going to be really, really worth your time, energy, and effort. I promise you, you will not regret it for a second. To register for the conference, check out streetcop.com, click conference, and everything you need will be there on the homepage. If you are looking for a room, just click book a room. The block has been sold out at the Gaylord Opryland Convention Center but there are many hotels nearby within a walking distance of the event. You don't want to miss out on this opportunity. We will see you there. Hey guys, welcome to this episode of the Street Cop Training Podcast. I'm your host, founder and CEO of Street Cop Training. My name is Dennis Benito. And have with us today, one of the members of our Street Cop Survivors Club. And we'll talk about that as well, but... None other than a Virginia police officer. He'll give you some of the details of what qualified him, unfortunately, to be part of our group that is designed and meant for law enforcement officers who are significantly injured in the line of duty. But I appreciate being here today. Please welcome Steve Schulten, right? Steve, tell us about you. Started with Rockingham County Sheriff's Department in 2002. Uh, worked with the Corrections Division. From there, I went to the Patrol Division was promoted to the gang unit and did some work with the attack team. After in 2015, I left the Rockingham County Sheriff's Department and went to work for the Timberville Police Department where I finished uh, my career. So tell us about, you know, what brings us to this podcast to episode today, how you ended up qualifying to be part of the Street Cop Survivors Club. In June 2020, excuse me, 2019, on June 26, I responded to a domestic call. Um, it was a domestic involving a man with a sword. While once I approached the, the house, um, I talked with the complainant outside who had advised me that inside the residence was her father and her boyfriend, who were in, at that time arguing. She originally, when she arrived, she got the call from her mother. When she arrived at the house in Timberville, which was 15 minutes after she got a call from her mother, her boyfriend and her forced open the door and got her mother out of the house. Once they got the mother out of the house, that's when she called 911. I was there approximately 30 seconds after the call came in. I immediately called for a backup, which is a, to a neighboring town, which is about four, maybe five miles south of us. Um, I working in it in a small town, less than two square miles, less than 3,000 residents, was the only Timberville officer working 
at that time. As I was talking to the complainant, I could hear the, the front door slam. Once I heard it slam, I started move, working my way towards the door. Could still hear arguing inside. Sounds like a fight going on. Can't really tell, but just to tell that there was definitely an argument going on. Knocked on the door, announced police, checked the doorknob. It was locked. Um, still could hear everything inside going on. I stepped up on the door frame and looked in through the door, which had a half moon. In it. Once I looked inside the half moon, I could see two males fighting over a metal object. The apartment was in total disarray. It looked like, you know, just like they just brawled through the whole apartment. Everything was in disarray. Pictures on the laying across the tables, tables turned upside down. And that, so at that point, I stepped back, called into my ECC through the radio and let them know that I was forced an entry. Um, I kicked the front door in. Once I kicked the front door in, I drew my weapon down and told both individuals to get down on the floor. One individual complied right away, got down on the floor. The other individual sat down in a chair right beside him. The individual in the chair said, well, he assaulted me. And I said, well, we'll take care of that in a minute, but just get down on the floor. Because at this point, I had no idea who was the, the aggressor in the fight. After a split second or so, the male in the chair then stands up, starts walking back to the back of the apartment, at which time I'm telling him to stop, stop. He then picks up a sword, an actual samurai sword, and begins to walk back towards the back of the apartment, um, at which point I enter into the apartment and got between suspect laying on the, the, the male laying on the floor and the suspect who had worked his way to the back of the apartment and kind of went around to turn to the right. I told the individual on the floor to get out of the apartment, at which point I worked my way back to the, towards the where the suspect went around the apartment the, to turn and began telling him, you know, come out where I can see you come out, you know, drop the sword. As I did, there was a countertop to my left with about a four foot opening to the right where the wall was. As I moved, put my left side of the body up against the, the countertop and was cutting the pie, I could, I finally made contact with the individual who had the sword at a, in a, like a, almost like he was swinging an ax on top of his shoulder. At which point I stepped to my left, drew, you know, drew down on him, told him to drop the sword, drop the sword and begin getting distance as far back as I could because at that point I realized I was in the hot zone. I was in a shit, you know, basically a shit sandwich, at which point I kept continuing to tell him to put it down. He lowered the sword at one point and asked, you know, what was I doing? I told him I was there for domestic. If you put the sword down, we'll talk about it. And at that point, he began to raise the sword. For me, when you look at the video, it's totally different, but I knew it was time to shoot because at the whole time he had never made eye contact. At the moment he made direct eye contact with me, I knew he was coming. At which point I shot him the first time. He goes down to his knees, um, faces away from me. I'm telling him to put it, you know, drop the sword, drop the sword. Um, I announced on the radio that shots fired. He then starts to get back up. I shoot him a second time. He goes back down. Again, same thing, telling him to drop the sword, drop the sword, and comply. He starts to get up a third time. I hit him a th another time with a, with a single shot. He goes down, but then it, this time he starts to get back up, stand on his feet, at which point I begin just dumping. I think I dumped a total of four to five rounds into him at this point, um, and he still keeps coming. The total distance between us was less than 10 feet. You're looking with a six-foot male, three-foot arm screech, and a three-foot sword. Um, there was not a whole lot of distance between us. As he falls forward, 
I raised my hand, my pistol hand up and blocked the sword. Um, unfortunately, by hitting it with the sword, my hand got hit with the sword and across the forehead, at which time I immediately started bleeding. I remember looking down at my hand and could see the, the two bones in my middle and ring finger um, before it started bleeding and thinking to myself that, man, this is going to hurt tomorrow. Um, no, I, I knew I'd, I'd been cut in the head because I was bleeding immediately. Disarm him, step over top of him, and clear the last room. Um, even, you know, back up a little bit here. When I, after I, he goes down, I do a mag change. Just what I trained myself to do. I did a, I did a quick mag change, um, reloaded, and then stepped over him and cleared the other room. Through this whole process, everything seemed like it was moving slow motion. It's, it's unreal to believe how slow that things were, were going in my head to the point that it was moving so slow that the only reason why I knew my firearm was working was because I could see each individual round being ejected from the slide as it was racking back. After I cleared the other room, I already announced that I needed two squads and the other backup officer arrived as I was trying to administer self-care to myself um, to the point that I had no idea who was coming in the door or not. Uh, at which point I even started to draw down on her until she drew, she called my name out, at which point I then just kind of turned the scene over to her. I took a knee just around the other side of the countertop away from the male that I just shot, listening to him breathe. I knew he wasn't going to make it much longer. As I'm kneeled down in front of the counter, the countertop there, she's standing over top of him and trying to stand between, basically between us and, and, and secure the scene. I had eventually had to ask her to come over and put my weapon back in the holster because I just couldn't feel my fingers anymore and had to actually had to have it set down. To which point, then if once the squad finally arrives, they load me up and it, they disarm me, which was kind of one of the worst feelings in the world to be as a cop just being this thing. Who disarmed you? The squad, the ambulance squad. The squad disarmed me. Um, I took my belt oh, I'm off. I'm sorry. Why did the fuck did the squad disarm you? Well, they disarmed me because they were getting ready to load me up to send me on a helicopter. They they made the decision because the air care was already en route because of the shots fired, knowing that somebody had been shot. They decided they were going to load me up, set me to the send me to UVA. Um, they took my firearm. Well, I'm sorry, like, but you're the cop on scene, right? So how the fuck is a first aid squad guy saying we're taking your gun? I'm um, so how no, did that work? It, it was basically because at this point I was incapacitated. I couldn't. I had no. I mean, I was fighting, trying to stay keep from going into squad into shock uh they made I mean, for me like that feels like it's completely against sops the law like that's fucking wild i mean it, it really was wild i mean it's you know at this point even if i needed to there was nothing i could do you know me handling having a firearm was probably unsafe at that point because i was out i of mean it. who was this guy's off-duty cop i mean what, what who was this they person? were they were full firemen they were some of the fire fire you know trained firefighters uh they, you why, know, they, why make that decision? Like, what was the theory behind I'm going to take this cop's gun because he's got a, he's got injuries? Well, because I had injuries, um, they were trying to get to, to ascertain my full body, what all was hurt. Injured OK, in so they took your belt off, took my belt off, which, you know, I made sure that the, the other officer that was there because the other officer had already arrived on scene that she took it and secured it in my my police vehicle. Okay, all right. It's it's, it's a little. That's why I wanted to clarify that. Like, is this guy like, yeah. give me your gun? You're not coming in the ambulance with the gun, right? Yeah. No. No. They just He's took, like, they're they trying took, to do an assessment. They're doing trying to do right. an assessment. Okay. Yeah. They just took the whole duty belt off, and, and it wasn't just like they just took the gun from me. It was just the whole duty belt. Okay. Um, okay. 
Thank you. That's yeah, what I want to clarify. That's clarified. I'm sorry. I'd be like, are you fucking nuts, dude? <laughs> right. And it was it's really kind of unreal because you know, as cops, we we always talk about how you know we're we're prepared to die and we're prepared to be in this situation, but we don't really talk about the ins and outs of it. Um, you know, for me being disarmed was I felt naked. I felt, you know, it was like, is this, you know, it's kind of surreal. Is this really happening? Um, didn't know how to, you know, take care of that myself. The fact that they they were telling me they were getting ready to fly me out was, you know, unreal to me. You know, never thought in my life that, you know, always thought that I'd be the one that would end up shooting somebody at some point in time or being shot myself, but never thought about what do I do? How do I act in this situation? It, the, the being loaded onto the helicopter was probably the most surreal thing that I've ever dealt with uh, just because those guys were spot on. They were wonderful but they didn't have a sense of humor. I mean, they showed up, you know, they're ready to work. You know, the, the medic in the back come over and introduced himself, said, Hey, I'm here to take care of you. You did your job. Now it's my turn. You asked if anything I could do, if you could do anything for me. And I'm like, man, it's dinner time. People like run through Taco Bell. And that just didn't go over well with him. He just didn't have a sense of humor. I get it. He was just there to do his job, but he did a wonderful job. I mean, made the flight somewhat, if you could say somewhat comfortable, uh, kept me dosed up with medications. I can remember flying over after mountain going into UVA and looking back towards West Virginia and seeing the mountains at the sunset going, thinking this is probably the prettiest sunset I've ever seen in my life. You know, is this going to be my last one? Cause I really had no idea how bad the injury was to the head. They just wouldn't tell me. They just said, you're cut really bad. Get to UVA. The, the doctors there were just wonderful. Uh, being in the ER there, getting sewn up. At one point, even arguing with the nurse about, I need to go to the bathroom. She's like, well, I'll bring you a bedpan. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to do it in a bedpan. I'm, I'm walking. I'm going to the bathroom one way or another. So it, that was kind of the surreal thing. Well, all right. I, I mean, I have a few questions. Go ahead. Uh, I'm going to go, go back a little bit to some of the things that I thought about as you were talking. And I'm not trying to be no. critical or try to Monday morning quarterback this, but I just have some no. things that, 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 uh, you know, cross my mind. Are you guys equipped with tasers? We are equipped with tasers being, even though we were equipped with them, being the distance that we were between him and knowing that when I retreated back, I had no place to go. I was, I was at the wit's end, so to speak. I was at a dead end. I just, knew yeah. That- no, I'm, I'm just curious about that. I mean, I'm not saying like, Hey, you no. didn't have to shoot. As a matter of fact, my question is, why didn't you shoot sooner? That's what I'm curious about. And that's, I guess, you know, the hindsight is I didn't really truly didn't want to shoot him because it, we do the what if game. Then, you know, I've even looked at it and going as a training exercise, trying to figure out what things could I do to teach other officers to do better after we look at my video and stuff. One of the things is I should have done the figure drill, two to the body, one to the head. I just never did it. You know, I had a training scar to myself in the sense that every time I have always talked about when I did something and I need to get off the X, always move to my left. When this time, if I moved to the left, it actually put me more in danger than if I had moved back to the right and and Mm -hmm. took cover that way. So I should have shot sooner. You know, the moment he, you know, he put it down, but like I said, he never seemed like he was coming towards me until he made eye contact. The moment he made eye contact, I knew he was coming. And then when he, when I looked at the video the first time through the interview with the state police, you can actually see that at the same time he, he looked at me, which I didn't notice 
in a time or in my mind I never saw was that he actually started to open up his hip and bring this as he brought the sword up to come. You know, and the, one of the other things that stood out in my mind, the biggest one during that interview with the state police is how eerie it was feeling to be on the perpetrator side of that interview, knowing that everything I'm talking about is being part of a criminal investigation and how scary it was. And like, even though I felt and knew that I did everything right, how eerie it felt that they, you know, they even read me my rights, you know, how, you know, how uncool is this? You know, how bad does this feel? Uh, knowing that I'm sitting on this side of the table with that, you know, granted that they, they were totally professional, really good about explaining things, why they asked certain things and showed me things that I didn't even, didn't even realize I had done, you know, to, to put me at ease saying that I did the right thing. How soon after the event did the state police, I guess, shooting response team show up to interview you? They had one, one of their investigators showed up at the emergency room at EVA. Uh, of course, did this the cursory? Do you want to give us an you know a statement now, or do you want to wait? Of course, I waited. I knew enough to wait. Mm-hmm. Um, but the bad thing for me was knowing that I was going to have to do it eventually. All the phone calls, all the everything was being overwhelmed. It was so surreal. I waited about forty eight hours. While the, I mean, the state police response team was already on scene. They they were working the scene. They did the scene. I had the number, and I finally called my chief and was like, "Just go ahead and set it up. Tell me when." So it was about two days afterwards after the shooting, and I probably should have waited another twenty four hours before I sat down with them, and, and got a re- another really good night's sleep before I sat down with them. You know, a lot of times that there are police officers who get involved in a shooting, and these shooting response teams they can't interview them in emergency room situations because they've you've been you've been induced into some kind of medication so if you're at an emergency room for the people listening to this and you've just been involved in a significantly traumatic incident my first advice piece of advice to you is uh, i think you should be treated for shock i think you should ingest narcotics uh to calm yourselves down i don't mean narcotics like recreational i'm talking about like a narcotic Mm -hmm. analgesic like a like a xanax to prepare your body to go into shock, because if that starts happening, it is very, very serious. So whether or not you've been treated for this situation and you're in this situation, my suggestion to people here is I would advocate tremendously to inform the medical staff that you've been advised that you may be inducing trauma, shock trauma. So let them know that you believe it's in your best interest to in, to ingest something to help you prepare in case it does happen. And let that shooting response team know that, hey, man, I'm going to work with you guys. No problem. But I'm on Xanax right now. And, you know, I would highly implore people to ensure that they have an attorney with them, not your fucking union representative. Right. We don't want yeah. that. Any situation like this, you do not. You want an attorney. And. My suggestion is not only do you want an attorney, you're going to want a qualified attorney. Don't get would, the guy that they give you, right? No, like, I, would, I get it. You're going to have to dig into your pockets and find somebody. I would truly recommend that, uh, even whether it's to the PBA or something like that. You know, for me, I didn't have that. I wish I would have um, because it had been a whole lot easier for me to just be able to say, here's my PBA rep, call him, talk to him. Um, and anything we do at that point, we'll go through him. But at that point, 
in my career, I didn't have it, which I really wish I would have. Like I said, and like you said, would have been able to handle the whole situation for him. I can remember coming home from the hospital early that morning, you know, with my chief and, and everybody and driving by the scene and seeing all the, these cars and thinking and getting really angry, thinking like, you know, who is this guy to, to, to challenge me when all they could have done is just put it down. If he had put it down, you know, we would have been in so much better situation and things would have been so much easier on us. Then to come home, you know, you try and go to sleep for a couple hours. And of course, with law enforcement, I'm sure it's with you, even with you guys is when something bad happens, everybody, you know, is there. Your phone's blowing up. It's constantly going off. And then you're, you're not getting the sleep that you need or rest. And then to have, you know, early that morning, your chief calls you and checks in on you and lets you know that, hey, they're getting, you know, they're putting a press release together. This is what they're thinking. Are you OK with it? Uh, which made me feel like I was still in control, even though in reality, I'm really not in control of nothing at this point. I'm totally I'm hurt. I'm on a lot of med, meds. Have no clue what I look like. You know, I have a scar up here from it. Scars on my hand at this time. Of course, I was you know all bandaged up and everything, and just still on the high, the adrenaline rush of everything, which is hard to explain to people unless you've been there to under you know what you're what's going through your mind. You know, I know I can't go hang out at the police department with my normal guys that I normally do with. When things get really bad, you call them up and say, "Hey, this is what's going on." You can't do that now because I'm out on administrative leave or under criminal investigation, so to speak. And nobody really wants to talk to you while you're sitting there. So it made it really rough. Did you actually have an attorney with you when you spoke with them? No, I didn't. And it was probably, you know, a mistake. Granted, I got lucky in the sense that, you know, I knew I I did everything right by the book. I never shot the, the, the man in the back. The, you know, everything from my body cam, you know, showed everything 100% of what I said was there, minus a few details um, of detail that was not in my memory. And, and it wasn't until I saw it on video that I would actually would have believed it that, you know, we asked the question whether I touched the sword or not. Um, clearly, in my mind, I never touched the sword in my memory, in my recollection. But when you see the video, you clearly see me standing over top of the body with the, the sword in my hand as I'm pitching it to the side. Uh, granted, you know, thank goodness I had my you know, body cam on and it showed everything from start to finish and very clear and seeing everything that I did. The body worn camera footage, is that now public footage? No, that they it's did not. Okay. No, uh, the chief has not released that publicly yet. Uh, and it uh, mainly because with the family, we don't want to try and re-traumatize the family. Um, the family, the survivors have been really, the wife in this situation has been really nice about everything. Very, um, you know, supportive of me. And in fact, you know, sent, you know, a thinking of you card, you know, get well card type thing to me, trying to be nice about things. Uh, you know, he made a bad decision that day. You know, cost his, you know, a wife had to, bury her husband, kids had to bury their father, and a mom had to bury her son because he just made, he made bad decisions. On scene, did they know that you had to shoot him and were there reactions to that? Yes, they learned that I shot him um, 
talking with the backup officer and my understanding reading some of the state investigation is a lot of the family actually thought when he left and the, her boyfriend came out of the house, they thought he went after a gun and thought that we had gotten into a shootout inside the residence. They didn't realize that I was the only one that had shot at that point. Hey guys, if you're enjoying the Street Cop Podcast, do us a favor and go give us a review on iTunes or Spotify, wherever you're listening to us. Tell a friend. We don't charge anything for the episodes. We appreciate your support. Check us out on any social platform by putting into the search bar, Street Cop Training. Give us a follow. We have a lot of free content coming out every single day that you might not catch here on the podcast, and it's important for you to be able to do your job more professionally, and we also entertain you as well. So what happened that led up to this, and, and was this a a typical course of history for these folks where they were, they kind of knew his MO. Does he have a history? Like what had, was he drunk? Was it like, what, what was, what caused all this? He was extremely intoxicated on some antidepressants. If I remember right, according to the toxic toxicology, uh, him and his wife had been in a bad fight. They were getting ready to split up. Um, but by all accounts, um, our dispatch didn't give me any prior history of any domestics at that situation at that scene on location. I've never been there. You know, like I said, in the five years that I'd worked for, or the four years at that point that I'd worked for the town, I had never been to the residence. So I didn't even know who he was. And I only know him by name now, but other than that, that was my first time ever dealing with him. So it was kind of really out of character, I guess, you know, for that, for me anyway, learning, you know, talking with some of the family and that learning that he had a very narcissistic behavior um he had, of course was extremely extremely intoxicated and with the, all the emotions i guess he decided i wasn't telling what to do in his house you know earlier you said that after firing your weapon you were trained yourself to do a mag change how often were you training with your firearm for yourself for a situation like this i i work on training you know drawing my weapon out getting it out almost weekly the department I worked for, I worked for, um, was part of a town group. You know, we have several towns in our county that only have, you know, six to ten officers or whatever. But they train together, and we train minimal four times a year, uh, whether it's use of force, you know, rifle training, pistol training, and we go over a lot of the new whatever's happening. The the instructors come up with new training just basically every couple months that we we train. In fact, just prior to this day, I had taken some close quarters combat training, which really kind of showed me some other skills and, and and focus on getting, you know, out of the holster, getting on target and taking it serious. What I find in my, you know, in our area, because we are such a rural area, like I said, our town is only, you know, about 3000 people. We're such a rural area and a lot of people in this area go, man, that won't happen here. It never happens here. And then when it does happen, everybody's total shot. And a lot of the officers are in the same boat. They don't believe it's going to happen to them until you're in that situation. I always trained for the worst and hope for the best. I always believed that I was going to get into a bad situation where I was going to have to, you know, either get shot myself or end up having to shoot somebody. And I trained that way. So it was nothing for me to get out and do that mag change because my fear was always to be into a fight, gunfight, and go empty. We had a class that we tried to run with a guy who's a good dude, friend of the company. The whole curriculum was put together and it was called uh, Officer Involved before, during, and after a shooting. And I got to tell you, it got goose eggs. 
We couldn't mm-hmm. get anybody to come for free. Right. Why do you think that is after being in a shooting? Because a lot of guys don't want to have to admit that they're going to have to do, be there. Uh, you know, we spend, you know, we get into this career, you know, the first couple of years you're in this career, you're trying to learn how to do things. And your biggest worry is trying to stay out of your sergeant's office, stay out of your admin's office. Then you go through the, when you, you start getting into the, where you figured out the job and figure out how to do things, then what happens is we get what complacent and with complacency comes laziness. It, you start not doing the things that you know you should be doing to be safe. And I don't understand why that is, but a lot of cops do that. We get lazy. We stop going to the gym. We stop doing the things that we need to do to stay sharp. And then you, towards the end of your career, you start seeing people get hit, getting hurt around you. And then you start wondering what you need to do. And hopefully some people like myself will rededicate themselves to getting back in physical shape and retraining and training hard. But I find it hilarious about how many, and I shouldn't say hilarious, how many people will go to training and it's big, especially with some of the bigger departments, it's 50 rounds or your qualification course. And that's all you shoot for the year, you know, maybe twice a year. How qualified are you or how prepared are you for, for a situation like this? You have to do it on your own. And there's a lot of people who won't do it on their own unless they're being paid for. For me, it was, I had a department that sponsored us and pushed us and always tried to make us better. And give us the training that we needed. The police chief himself was spot on. Believed that everybody needs to be trained for the worst. For me, I guess that some of it is officers don't want to put themselves in that situation because it's it's thinking of the worst. Um, you know, when you look at the numbers on it, if you look at the study, the statistics on it, it's percentage wise is majority of us aren't. You know, ninety some percent of us are will, will never be involved in a shooting. So they'd rather go with that than actually be prepared for when something does bad. Um, and a lot of your older peers, especially in our area, are like, that doesn't happen. Here. But in the last 12, 13 years, we've had, we're averaging probably about a, a shooting about every six months. Last year, we had our first true big active shooter situation where two police officers at Bridgewater College were shot and killed um, doing their job. You know, that's never happened here. And we, you know, and now, you know, the communities in our uproar going like, you know, but we're the valley. We don't have this problem. Not thinking that it's coming. It's here. We just gotten lucky at this point. So you, I'm assuming, ended up having to retire through the situation. Yes. I had to retire basically because I have nerve damage in my hand. I have about on a good day, 16 pounds of strength. Some days I'm lucky enough I can open my. T- my Dr. Pepper, my 20 ounce Dr. Pepper, some days I can't do it myself. Um, and it's, and of course, it's in my gun hand. Um, I've also got three vertebrae in the neck that were crushed. And at some point, they're going to have to do surgery, which will create even more numbness and loss of feeling through the right arm. Goddamn. Yeah. Leaving the profession, did that have an impact on you? Did you f- suffer through any kind of uh, you know, emotions that you didn't anticipate occurring. Yeah. Leaving the profession this way is not, I've always been an athlete and, and enjoys the competitive stuff and doing things and being involved and doing and working with community. Um, leaving the profession this way felt kind of like I was cheat, getting cheated because I didn't get to leave on my terms, so to speak, leaving, you know, getting hurt, 
leaving like this. I mean, I spent the last year helping that, you know, doing admin stuff, trying to help the chief out that way, which is not what I, not me. I've never been a desk person. So that was kind of hard, hard to deal with, a hard pill to swallow. Uh, then it creates the, you know, the legal stuff where I had to fight with workman's comp. And then the, you know, the retirement system had to fight with them uh, for almost a year, almost, well, about two and a half years now fighting with those two groups just to get my, you know, get settled with workman's comp and get my, my pension that I, you know, my disability pension, it's just been a nightmare. Um, which isn't is that something, isn't that something that like literally police officers go out, they get significantly injured. They put their lives on the line. You're a hero for a short period of time. And then when it all go, everybody's willing to do shit for you. And then when it all goes away, uh, nobody wants to hear anything. Josh Fidel, right. who's associated with our company was shot in the head in Atlantic city, walks with complete atrophy. Um, hmm. He's a great guy. I mean, literally shot in the head. It was like one of the most significant survival stories ever, probably in the United States of a police officer being shot in the head. And to this day, he still has not had the city of Atlantic city will not pay for his medical care for him and his family. Could you imagine? Oh, that's, right? that's they will horrible. not. He's still, he's fighting them. The guy can yeah. barely walk and he's fighting them just for medical benefits for him and his family. And that's ridiculous. And I've said that I, you know, through my fight, I've reached out to all the local politicians and even tried to reach out to the governor himself. And don't get me wrong. I think our governor of our state's great, but the system's wrong in this situation. You know, I'm lucky because mine's still, you know, kind of short in a sense. But you hear about other people like, you know, just like you talk about get shot in the head and he's still fighting. You know, it, it doesn't make sense. We're asking, you know, not only fire, you know, for police officers, but we're also asking all first responders to put their lives on the line. But yet when it comes time to it, nobody wants to take care of them. You know, so no wonder why we're having a, you know, such a crisis in today's day and age of getting people to line up and do this job. You know, why do I want to do this job if in the end I'm not going to be taken care of? You know, my daughter um, who started out her career the night, you know, decided the night I got hurt standing beside my bed at UVA that this is what she wanted to do. And then as the legal fight with me continued through the system, she decided this wasn't for her. You know, if she gets hurt like I did, who's going to take care of her and her kids? So she, you know, she walked away. How many other good officers and good people are we losing because they're walking away because it's not worth it? You know, it's cost me twenty one over $21,000 just to get my pension. That's $21,000 I could use elsewhere to take care of myself and other, other things. It's wild. People don't hear the inside of this stuff. They don't know the bullshit that goes on behind the scenes. It's, it's ridiculous. Mm -mm. And it, it is really ridiculous. You know, I, you know, had, thank God I had a really good attorney um, who continued to fight for me with, you know, took over the VRS stuff, you know, and fought with them. And, you know, one of the medical doctors said, oh yeah, he's good to, you know, he's good to work, you know, and I'm like, I got 16 pounds of strength. You know, it takes 10 pounds to squeeze the trigger of a Glock. Mm, what, you know, how am I going to control all that recoil? And I knew that I couldn't. And we even had documented where I did some training, you know, one of our trainings, use of force trainings through the town. And in, in the live scenario where I had to draw my weapon to shoot somebody, I almost dropped my weapon. But yet they didn't want to hear that. You know, I, you know, I had four, almost five years on a tech team. I'm no, you know, I'm no dummy when it comes to tactics. 
but I knew I couldn't, I wasn't safe to carry a firearm in that situation, not with somebody else's life on the line. If it was my own, it's one thing, but it's, I can't do it to protect anybody else. It's no guarantee that I can control that weapon. So, now, how did you find out about the Street Cop Survivors Group? On Facebook. You know, I, I've been following you guys for a while. And, of course, I push you guys you know, with a lot of the, the case law because that's something that I've preached as a former FTO is you got to know your case law, know what you can and can't do more so than what your admin says you can you can and can't do because your admin a lot of times doesn't always know everything but you you know there's only one way to protect yourself is you know law enforcement's not a career that you know you get in it you get a book and there it is and it never changes it changes daily you've got to constantly understand the case law how laws are changed and talk with your attorneys and find out what's going on um i've appre- i appreciate because i still watch and read up on some of the case law stuff that y'all are doing now which is unreal. You know, you see some of the new guys are learning the, the, the stuff, what you're putting out there. I'm watching some departments going like, well, we never know you could do, we didn't know you could do that. Well, if we don't know case law, how do we know what we can and can't do? So, so you stumbled into the group. You saw we had the group made. Mm-hmm. Stumbled into really? it. Yes. Yeah, just kind of stumbled into it. And like I said, I really appreciate it and still do. And it's, you can't, ex- you know, an officer can't be too trained. And, and I tell them, you know, all the young guys that still keep in touch with me and the ones that I train, you cannot be too trained. There's no such thing. You'll never know everything in this career. The way you guys break down the the case law in, into simple, understandable ways. You know, when we go through the academy, you know, here, you know, and I, and I tell everybody this, most of the training that we get through law enforcement in the, is here's your gun, here's your stuff, here's what you can do in the heat of the moment, but we never talk about the mental side of things. You know, how do we take care of ourselves after we've had a 12 hour day and we've seen the suicides and the deaths and all that stuff. We don't talk about that. That's taboo. Nobody really wants to talk about that. Now it's becoming more foresight now that we're doing it some, but not to the way we should. Now you're starting to get peer to briefing groups and stuff like that. That's helping. But a lot of, there's still a lot of, backwoods and i said you say backwoods a lot of country or urban or rural departments still don't want to address the, the mental side of law enforcement it's only physical what you what they think you can do and it's more on the lines of what looks good if it looks okay then it's okay to do but if it doesn't look good then we don't want to do it regardless of what the case law says you can do something or can't do something if that makes sense What's the future look like for Steve Shulton? Um, not sure yet. Um, I've got my master's in in uh, master's of arts in human counseling and criminal justice. I'm still doing quite a bit of work with some of the couple of the debriefing groups in the area. Just kind of taking things slow, a little bit slower, and kind of now that I've got, I've just finally got approved for my disability benefits through the BRS. So. For me, I'm just kind of trying to take a step back in life and just kind of reassess and see where I want to go. I'm thinking I'm probably going to go back and get my counseling degree and maybe get into counseling of officers and first responders with, you know, with my knowledge of being there and understanding what it's like. Sounds pretty good. Well, listen, dude, it was uh, an honor having you on today. Mm -hmm. There's any last messages you want to deliver before we wrap this motherfucker up. (laughs) 
the biggest thing I would say tell any officers is prepare for the worst. Put money aside, put prepare your family, your girlfriends, your boyfriends, your kids for the worst because it's going to happen. And it may not be where you're the, the lead or you're there or whatever. It's going to happen. You know, I never talk to my, you know, my kids about, hey, when dad goes to work, maybe you want to stay off social media. My daughter found out that I got I had been involved in a shooting and I was seriously hurt through Facebook. True story. Um, so how do you prepare your family other than you have to do it beforehand and not after? I never prepared my family for what happens when you get hurt and come home. And we have to deal with the aftermath in that sense. I always prepared them that, hey, I'm going to leave tonight and there's a good possibility that I won't come home tomorrow. And that was the biggest thing I've always left my family with and not prepared with, hey, I'm going to go out and I could shoot somebody and have to come home and you will have to deal with potential that your name should be in the paper for something negative. And especially in today's society, how do, how does how is that going to play out with family dynamics in, in the community? Luckily, I have a community that's very supportive of law enforcement, but in a lot of areas, people don't have that. It's not a very supportive. The first thing you, know, you hear when an officer shoots somebody is, oh my gosh, they're picking on somebody or it's negative. You know, the officer's at fault instead of, no, he did the right thing. And there's a lot of admin, you know, a lot of administrations that are still that way is they won't stand up and support the officer right away. It's, hey, you're out on administrative leave. When we clear you, we'll talk to you then. And how do you, you know, you're not taking care of your officers that way. Learn how to take care of yourself and find a life outside of law enforcement too. I think it's a good last message, my friend, that I appreciate you taking the time to come on here and doing this with us and deliver a lot of value today. Thank you, man. Thank you for your opportunity. Um, yeah. I'll, always looking to speak and try and teach and educate. Sweet brother. Well, listen, till the next time we uh, see each other. Absolutely. Have a bro. great thank weekend. You. Yeah. Thanks for being here, Steve. I appreciate it. Thank you, Dennis. Take care, man. See you, buddy. Guys, if you're in an area where you're trying to get to our classes, but we're not close to you, fret not. We actually have on-demand training at streetcop.com. You can take that course online right now, and then you could attend that training in the future at no additional cost. You can redeem your voucher, so you get two for the price of one. We don't want to deny you the ability to take this training now, especially knowing that it can keep you safe at a very minimum, putting bad guys in jail where they belong, and at the maximum, going home to your family. Check out streetcop.com for that offer.